Welcome. This is Grace Asagra, and this is Quantum Nurse, out of the rabbit hole from stress to bliss. And welcome, listeners, our audience. And today, I have my very good friend, Dr. Kenneth Carter, as my guest for this episode. This podcast is a, a podcast so that we could provide holistic methods to help dementia caregivers live a rewarding life. But most of the time, the information that we have in this podcast goes beyond the dementia caregivers. And I'm hoping that it, at the end of the podcast, we are inviting the listeners and the viewers and challenge you to intentionally co-create the successful outcomes of your journeys. So together, we can experience optimum health peace and happiness that manifests love, gratitude, respect, and empowerment in our daily lives. So, Dr. Kenneth Carter, welcome. Hi, hi, Grace. It's a pleasure to be on your, your program. Yeah, this is like our little mini reunion. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And uh, always around issues of health, so that's, that's a blessing. Yeah. So, Dr. Carter, and you can call him Kensu, Dr. Kensu is a mainstream integrative physician and a longtime practitioner of whole health ancestral medicine. He's board certified in psychiatry, board certified in acupuncture, and specializes in the integrative use of national acupuncture detoxification association protocol. So that's NADA, right? Yes, yes, that's that's the uh, the NADA protocol. Yeah. Okay, in psychiatry and emotional wellness care, Dr. Kensel loves sharing his NADA pro ear protocol because it's quite simple, quite effective, quite easily taught and learned. He's recently re-elected as president of NADA. Dr. Kensel is a grateful heir to NADA's legacy of multicultural black, brown, white unity that whispers quietly across decades from the South Bronx Lincoln Acupuncture Recovery Center. So, right. Dr. Carter, Kensu, how did you, what, what did you, how did you transition from traditionally Western medicine doctor to being an integrative physician? Well, the uh, interesting thing is that I, um, when I was in medical school, um, I decided to take a, a year off between the second and third years of medical school. The first two years are what we call the didactic years, where book learning um, exclusively. And, um, and the next two years is clinical work, where you're really exploring and deciding what you want to specialize in, what you would like to do. So um, still being uncertain about exactly where I wanted to go, uh, but also very attracted to the use of ancestral healing techniques, um, commonly known as holistic uh, care and techniques. I really wanted to know that they were very helpful for very sick people and that um, going into the field of medicine, that this would be something that would be effective for what I would be doing. So I took a year off uh, from medical school uh, with advice and support of um, a, a dear a friend of mine and a, a mentor, a teacher, 
may he rest in peace, uh, Brother Ishmael Jamal. And um, through his support and guidance, I ended up going to the um, Lincoln Agape Recovery Center in the South Bronx. The um, interesting thing is that being a, um, a man of, of uh, Black descent here uh, in America, African-American descent, uh, it was very clear um, from what I was learning outside the classroom that a big hole in what was being taught in the classroom at that time was the medicine of Black and Brown pe people across the world. Uh, it was exclusively um, a Western um, medicine approach, scientific approach, which is very good in its own right. Uh, there was a hole that was there for me personally. And as we've come to see the way things are developing now, a big hole, um, you know, those several decades ago when I was uh, in, in medical school uh, with sort of techniques that are extremely useful for lifestyle, overall health um, and wellness and well-being. So that's how I ended up going to the South Bronx. I um, uh, ended up thinking I was just going to go learn a needling protocol and uh, to work with uh, substance use, uh, something that might might be helpful, sounded good. And I tell you, I was just so impressed uh, that it became a staple in my toolbox. Today, I would even go so far as saying, out of all the other techniques I have, out of all the other traditions I've been exposed to, um, uh, you know, it's interesting, I was a chief resident my final year in, um, in my residency in psychiatry, specializing in psychopharmacologic uh, investigation and research. But I like to say now, there was one tool in my therapeutic toolbox that I could be confident would help most of the people most of the time, it would be the simple ear acupuncture protocol uh, that, um, that we've developed uh, through, through NADA. Uh, if I could tell a story that I think would be illustrative, especially for uh, the caregivers of dementia patients, you know, where you're dealing with issues of confusion, sometimes of irritability, sometimes there are psychotic symptoms that come into play, issues of sleeplessness, anxiety. Um, the very first patient I was directed to uh, was a um, gentleman who was schizophrenic, uh, had been out smoking crack all night, and was hearing voices telling him to kill himself and to kill other people. Now, I'm a medical student. When I first go in there, I'm looking for something to read. You know, then give me books, give me articles, let me read and see what the didactic is behind it. Uh, well, I walk through the door and they say, you know, sit down. Get a treatment yourself, because it's not that kind of party. This is an experiential, uh, it's very much an ex experiential sort of a, um, a process from the inside out is what uh, we like to say. So I get my first treatment uh, and um, I fall asleep and wake up and feel like I've been on the beach all day. This is like after going to sleep for about an hour. And so uh, that was the first day I was there. So now a week later, I've gotten the training, it's time, time for me to start to treat others with this very simple protocol. And I'm directed to this gentleman who wants to kill people and kill himself. Not that he wanted to, but he's hearing voices telling him to do that. So I'm a student. First thing I'm thinking is, okay, he wants to kill himself. What's he gonna do if I stick a stainless steel pen in his ear? What's he gonna do to me? So I'm, I treat him, I'm anxious, I'm watching him the whole time. 
he falls asleep. And again, in about a half an hour, he wakes up. It's a different person sitting in that chair. Uh, even though he's still hearing voices, they are tremendously diminished below what they were just a half an hour before. Uh, he's still hearing the voices, but they're not telling him to kill himself. They're not telling him to kill other people. Just from his whole look, um, and uh, in the traditional East Asian medicine nomenclature, we would call that his shin. Um, you know, his, his um, affect uh, had completely changed as opposed to wide-eyed and distressed. Now you see somebody who's sitting there looking calm. You can have a conversation with, with this person. And so this is also somebody now who can really benefit from the psychosocial aspects of the, the treatment that was also offered as part of the Lincoln Detoxification Center, uh, where they did have the group treatments, they had the men's groups, they had um, uh, job reentry sorts of supports, they had programs for, um, for mothers, uh, daycare for children. It was a complete sort of a program. But unless you can get that person in a state of mind so that they're ready to benefit from the other aspects of treatment, we find what we often find, say, um, uh, in an emergency room setting. I worked in a dedicated psychiatry emergency room as well for over a decade. Uh, an individual like that coming in, hearing voices, um, having command auditory hallucinations to harm himself, hurt other people, distress, distraught. We would tend to reach for um, a neuroleptic like a Haldol also very commonly used in dementia patients who may have uh, psychotic or delusional uh, features to, um, to, their, um, uh, to how they are feeling and how they present. Um, he's, he's on the verge of being agitated to the point where you may think about a restraint. So you think about Haldol, you think about Ativan or a benzodiazepine. It would certainly control the, the behavior but you don't end up with somebody who's relaxed and alert. You end up with somebody who falls asleep. They may wake up hours, hours later because the medicine is such a, uh, a, a powerful medicine. And so you may end up at, at a similar point, but it will be hours down the road. And also you run the risk of side effects. These medicines are not like saying, you know, I'm gonna eat an apple a day to keep a doctor away. The same thing with, with patients who have uh, issues of, of cognitive decline that you find with dementia, with the behavioral and, and the cognitive disturbances. So where, where uh, now we've learned that you really do, do not want to reach for benzodiazepine first. You don't want to reach for an antipsychotic first, but still these medicines are very, very common when, when we get in, into the territory of someone uh, and a caregiver is like, uh, calling their doctor and they're saying, what do I do? You know, I can't get, get him to bathe. I can't get him to shower. He gets really irritable because, because especially in the early stages of, of dementia, they know, you know, we know, but their loved ones know that their memory is starting to fade. It can be extremely frustrating to deal with that. And so how do you manage to treat these issues in a way that will end up with uh, a better outcome than when you started and not predispose your loved ones to the whole host of side effects that can occur with, with these medicines, either from involuntary sorts of movements, if we're talking about the antipsychotic um, 
agents that are, that are used uh, with the benzodiazepines. We're worried about falls, and it, it affects their ability, ability uh, to maintain a good posture and not fall, depending on, on the dose and what, and what the, uh, the tolerance is. So what I like to say is that the world is upside down. Um, as opposed to, to reaching for pharmaceutical agents 90% of the time, and these alternatives that we know can be very effective in terms of fostering resilience, in terms of fostering uh, a relaxation response, and not just in the, in the uh, patients who have dementia, but also in the caregivers. Uh, and, and the more holistic modalities can be used across the entire spectrum from, from wellness to uh, a crisis care, like the individual I described uh, who I first treated uh, with my experience with the ear protocol, he was in a crisis. But uh, I um, ha have also um, um, had the fortune of working with a research team and we published a number of articles Last year, we um, published an article simply using an acupressure bead, which is one of the points that we use with the protocol. And especially at this time of COVID, it was quite um, um, a blessing that we did this. The, the article was published last summer. Now, now our members, those who train and treat, we have a number of online tools for self um education that shows how to use this very simply by simply using acupressure at a point in the ear it's called shin men that i think about as a crossroads point because it's it's central to so many different things but just that that simple point we published an article last year about using it um, to prevent uh, anxiety and burnout in healthcare workers because even the healthcare workers on the front line are subjected to all sorts of stress. And uh, many might turn to, you know, the glasses of wine at night when you get off from work. Um, you, you know, you have trouble sleeping, so you're not as sharp as you need to be. There are all sorts of articles showing that healthcare workers who are in a burnout phase, they don't perform as well. We make more um, 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 mistakes, misread situations more often when, when we're not uh, in a state of wellness and well-being. So, so this is a very simple protocol and you do need something that is simple. If we, if we don't have these sorts of things available, then you're always waiting for the, for the physician or the ARNP to show up with a prescription to write a, um, a, a prescription to, to deal with these things. But pharmaceuticals are not the only answer. I went to Lincoln Acupuncture Recovery System uh, Center and, and traveled across the country looking for modalities that did not only involve pharmaceuticals. And again, through the, the mentors I've been blessed to, uh, to study with um, and through um, ongoing study and investigation, uh, we have those agents. I think the world is starting to wake up to that now. It's in a completely different place than where I was uh, in medical school even uh, 25 years ago. So okay, I've talked a lot. So I mean, I hope, uh, no, no, I hope, no, hope, hope no, I'm no, answering no, the question. Okay. Yes, good. yes. And no, those are all important, you know, so you didn't talk a lot. No, I'm glad you mentioned about, you know, that it's a different time because I was going to even ask you that, that question. So what's the difference before, during that time and now? 
Um, yes, yes. From what I heard, from I read, from I only experienced ear treatment only a few times when I did go to the, you know, under to to be exposed myself and to start learning at the Lincoln Center, but I didn't oh, read. Wonderful. So but, I. What now? I'm, I'm sorry, I missed that last part. I said I did. I was able to experience ear treatment at the Lincoln Center during those times in 1980s when I first arrived in the United States. Okay. And I'm pursue that study, but for some reason I didn't because that the teacher I was following before, at some point he was, he's also the one who was making the acupuncture board exam, so he wasn't allowed anymore to teach. But mm. nevertheless, it, Rita, it did not, it still redirected me to my combination of indigenous medicine with Western medicine. Yeah. Yes. Back to that, from all the readings that I've, I've read and heard, and I was able to look at the, I found your video interview. It, it seems like so obvious that it is so important for emotional wellness. And yes. emotional wellness is for everyone. Yes. So then I know you're trying to reach out and they're in, you know, encouraging, you said, the social workers. So. Are, are you doing anything to reach out to like nursing schools or any holistic yeah. organization that will yeah. offer these courses? Yeah, yeah. I um, actually have an article that, that was published for uh, continuing um, education credits in the Journal of Addiction Nursing. Uh, that was published maybe three or four years ago. And uh, it lays out the protocol extremely well. Uh, we were, my, my uh, co-investigator um, uh, and author is uh, Michelle Oshun Perlmuter. Uh, we authored that, she's an ARNP. And um, so that's there in the Journal of Addiction Nursing. Uh, and uh, we were invited to write that. So, so, so the um, awareness is growing, but you know, it, it, it's amazing how long it takes sometimes, even for evidence-based sorts of practices to really go out and disseminate into the various professions. Uh, in 2006, uh, I actually was a, a co-author again for tip number 45, which is the NIH SAMHSA CSAT um, um, publication on best practices in detoxification and substance use. Uh, I've actually wrote um, the pages 102 to 104, so I know them very well. But, but, uh, but they address the use of the, the, uh, the NADA ear um, acupressure, acupuncture protocol and addictions. And for the first time, the US government recognized uh, an alternative medicine as a best practice. That was in 2006. And so then I'm thinking, okay, the government's recognized it. It's got SAMHSA, CSAT uh, approval. This thing is going to take off. Here we are, what, 14 years later, and uh, only about half the states have uh, a law, and the other half, you know, are in other states of understanding and acceptance. Um, even in, in some states that have a good understanding, you recognize that the practice of medicine is, um, is politics 
as well. And so it's um, somewhat disappointing me to know that uh, being board certified in acupuncture as well through the national certifying body, that there are still states like, like in uh, Florida, in California, in North Carolina, where there are lots of acupuncturists, but those in the ivory tower of leadership um, are misinformed to the extent of thinking that if NADA com comes in as a simple tool, somehow it's going to cause an adverse competition with full body acupuncture practice. Whereas what I found is that the NADA ear protocol is the best advertisement you could possibly have. And if you're a skilled acupuncturist, you know, I mean, why be concerned about a first aid tool like the NADA protocol if you're really confident in your own skills, you know, as an acupuncturist? Well, one of the things that we do in acupuncture uh, that I find very similar to what we need to do in psychiatry and medicine in general is to clear the field. Uh, in, the, in the practice of acupuncture, it's formalized in terms of, of uh, we check check the um, check the uh, the pulses and and can monitor those we look for other physiologic signs but the, the pulses are particularly important in terms of being able to um, to to diagnose if there if the chi is disturbed if there's a lot of other extraneous sources of distress going on it's difficult to even be precise in picking up what the underlying um, issues might be there is nothing that is better than the, the NADA protocol than clearing the field. Where I, I, I see that in psychiatry, uh, a wonderful example I gave was the first person I ever treated. Even if he was coming to me as an acupuncturist, you would want to get the same sort of response that we got with the NADA protocol. Because now you've got somebody that can really have a conversation with you about their history, about their life, so you can get a good history. You've got somebody where you, you can understand other physiologic signs and, and symptoms and put them into a perspective that's not um, adversely impacted through the overactivation of the autonomic, uh, uh, autonomic uh, system that is your fight, flight, or fight response. You want all of that to settle down. Even in, say, in general medicine, say you're treating someone with pain. We know that pain itself is not just a physical symptom. It has a cognitive component. It has an emotional component. And often those cognitive and emotional components are just as important as any sort of a, a physical injury or difficulty a patient might be having. And for mild to moderate symptoms of pain, something like the ear acupuncture, something like yoga, something like a Tai Chi, like a mindfulness-based stress reduction practice can be just as good as any pill anybody can give you. Uh, after the uh, profession has gone through yet another round of overprescribing, uh, the um, opiates, of course, was an egregious case. And it's an epidemic that we're still trying to come out of. Uh, one of the things that uh, national pain societies are recommending now is that you think of acupuncture first, that you think of these alternative modalities first, not as a second, not as, as, as something that you think of after you've gone through the oxycodone and the Vicodin and the fentanyl, but that you think about those first. Uh, if pain is severe enough that you do need opiates, and I like to say 
that um, um, uh, what I'm talking about in, in, is a perspective on where and when to use certain um, agents. So this is not a categorical um, critique of the use of any sorts of, of medicines at all, which is why I always like to say I was chief resident on a cycle farm um, investigation unit. Uh, I'm a psychiatrist working in an emergency room. You use, when you need good drugs, you need them, but the world is upside down. And so one of the things that uh, there, there's an excellent group out of um, uh, Columbia, Columbia University who's done bench animal research using the ear, ear protocol um, and has really proven that um, at least uh, in terms of the sort of bench research they're doing, it looks to be the same uh, with human beings as well, but that the NADA protocol, even if you have to use opiates, it helps to block the development of tolerance. So now you get um, um, a sustained response at the same dose you may have started on without needing to keep going higher and higher and higher, which is where you get into trouble uh, with shutting down the respiratory centers and the um, vulnerability to death because you stop um, you stop breathing you know from from taking the the higher dosages so uh, again I, you know I can't think of any tool in my toolbox that would have more benefit for more people most of the time than this very very simple protocol I I don't know um, uh, why um, uh, many of my acupuncture colleagues in those states I mentioned. Uh, haven't embraced it wholeheartedly, except that, you know, perhaps their representatives uh, in the ivory tower are misguided in what they think they're trying, trying to protect. I can tell you, though, that uh, working within the VA system now, the, uh, the, the VA has, um, has launched a um, series of services called Whole Health Services. Uh, and with the whole health services, they're calling on exactly those sorts of treatments that when, when we think of them, we think of black and brown. We're talking about acupuncture. We're talking about the use of an informed sort of a diet. Uh, we're talking about the use of yoga, of Tai Chi. Um, and so um, one of the things I like, like to point out uh, when, it, when it comes to diet is that the uh, longest lived populations in the world today are not those that have a hospital on every corner. They're those that have a lifestyle. And so uh, whether, whether you're talking about in Okinawa, which is where you know, the longest lived people are, are now, you're talking about acupuncture along with diet. When, in, or whether you're talking about the Bantu in South Africa, where uh, before they adopted Western methods of treatment, they didn't get the hypertension, they didn't get the diabetes, the strokes, to the extent that you see now. Uh, for uh, Black uh, Americans, experiments have been done where for two weeks, you would take someone who had been eating a traditional diet full of all the, um, the source of plant-based uh, products and, and nutrients that you might find, say, in a Mediterranean diet, and, uh, and for two weeks, exposed them to what has become to be known as an all-American diet, lots of sugar, lots of fats, lots of salts. Within a two-week time period, you see the changes start taking place throughout their, their digestive system that would predispose 
to the diabetes, to the cancer, to the cardiovascular conditions. You see the signs that are starting to develop. But also, it goes in reverse because your, your body is just waiting, you know, through these ancestral sorts of techniques for us to turn around and embrace uh, what is healthier and more whole for us. So even with just two weeks of getting away from an all-American diet and back to something that is, is, is healthier, you can see your resiliency, you can see your physiologic and emotional resiliency start to come back. So where, where, where the not a protocol fits, to bring this back full circle to the caregivers of patients with dementia, it's a lot of stress. It's a lot of stress. And depending on the tools you have, you're going to use the ones that you are familiar with. Uh, some of those may be good. Some of those might not be so, so good. But one of the things we know with the NADA protocol is that it helps with those sorts of transitions, you know, to, to, to transition from one sort of a lifestyle. Uh, I mentioned that it cut its teeth uh, at the height of an opiate epidemic in the South Bronx, and this was 30 years ago. We see that's come back full circle. It cut its teeth in a community uh, that was that was protesting the poor health care that they, they were receiving, the treatment by the police, the treatment by the um, um, political systems. And, uh, and, and it was an, outgr an outgrowth of people helping themselves, looking abroad for other sorts of interventions that could be helpful for, um, uh, to fill, um, um, to fill the lives of, 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 of folks in a way that mainstream approaches to um, healthcare and medicine simply were not. And um, not, and, and again, it's not to blame and say anyone is not doing the best they can, but it is very clear now the way in which we're embracing these um, healthcare approaches from, in, from black, brown, indigenous, people of color, that that is a missing link that the Western world needs. We need that. Um, I like to say, if I get hit by a bus, don't take me to see the acupuncturist. I don't, I don't particularly think I need to go to see an herbalist if I get hit by a bus. You want the best that Western mainstream can give you. If you're, if, and, but by the same token, the minute that you get stabilized, you need to get out of the hospital. That's very well established as a fact. You predispose yourself to infections and all sorts of, of, of things that, that can occur. Medical errors that can occur, you need to get out and get back to a lifestyle. It's, it's very clear that those are, are, are the things that are associated with long health and vibrant health. And so the caregivers of, of dementia patients if they um, want to look at the use of not, not a acupressure or acupuncture as a technique, I, I, I think that would be a wise move to make. We have online tools where they can begin to use the acupressure right now themselves and for their loved ones. Um, and I'm and very confident that it will help both the caregiver and the patient and the loved one being cared for to be able to cope in a better and more resilient way. These tools are, are there. The particular niche 
that, that I see the, uh, the NADA protocol playing though, is that it, it is um, it's passive to a great degree. Uh, if you're talking about yoga and Tai Chi, you got to go to class, you got to learn it, you have to have that sort of investment. The first patient that I treated, that was not the kind of guy you could have said, okay, let's sit down and do a mindfulness breathing you know, exercise. You had to be, be able to um, impact them uh, in, a, in a profound way, in a meaningful way, in an important way very quickly in a way where they could be a passive participant to get their head together. And now they, they, they're in a state of mind to go on and learn these other sorts of things. I think that's the special niche that, that, the, um, that this protocol plays. Um, it's interesting too that when we think about the idea of trauma and, and when you talk about dementia, you're all often talking about nearing the end of life where all sorts of stuff can start to come up with regard to um, relationships that might not quite be healed with communications that you, things you wish you had said, perhaps things you wish you hadn't said or, or done. And we all have those sorts of regrets. Um, how do you manage that? One of the things that the entire profession of psychiatry and behavioral health learned after 9-11 is that debriefing after acute trauma ain't always cracked up to be. You know, um, the um, ground zero for, for treatment after the World Trade Centers were bombed was St. Vincent Hospital. And they did, um, they had a, a wealth of outcome data that showed that um, of, of those that were impacted and having access to social workers, to psychologists, uh, versus the, the, the NADA protocol, overwhelmingly, they wanted the NADA because they weren't ready or able to talk. The whole idea of severe trauma, of watching a loved one go through a, deterior, a deterioration that can be heartbreaking, is sometimes it's tough to put it into words. How do you still help someone if you got a thousand social workers and psychologists to talk with, if you're not in the headspace yet to be ready and able to talk about it from, from that um, and to get help from that angle. This is a tool that can bridge that gap. Very reliably so, the evidence is there that is not a question anymore. And um, 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 you can feel my passion for it. I think it's the next yes. best thing to slice yes. bread. So I'm going to ask some questions, so please I do. Yeah. yeah, I was going well, let me just ask you now. So what makes this work so important for you? Uh, it helps people in a way that I don't know of anything else that can accomplish as much with as little. Um, it's efficient, it's effective, and a bead, you can get probably a thousand of the acupressure beads for $10. You know, and using um, what we suggest on our website and where the instructional materials are, uh, all you need is one on each ear. So a thousand beads will last you for how long? Uh, the if uh, once uh, the uh, the viral situation lets up and we figured out how to to really be in a room with patients safely again, uh, I'd encourage folks to think about the acupuncture pens. Uh, you can get um, um, 
pens for maybe two to three cents, pennies a piece. So now, so now we're talking about even if we do all five points of, of the protocol, and many people do as well with three points as they do uh, with five points in one ear. Many people do just as well with just the beads as they do with the pens. But say we use all five uh, of the points for any given uh, client that's coming through, you're talking at most a nickel a piece for, for the pen. You're talking about 50 cents in terms of a material investment. The other investment is for the practitioner. Uh, even though I'm a physician and acupuncturist, we really espouse that this should be in the hands uh, of uh, every grandmother on every block that wants to help little Johnny when he's going through his stuff, you know, before he goes left, when he could have something to help to guide him to go right. Uh, we wanted to see it in the hands of social workers, psychologists, of nurses. So now you're talking about those in the healing profession who otherwise would not have a somatic tool. They don't have a physical tool to help someone who comes through the door. They're waiting for the doc to come along and write a script. It makes folks much better, much more uh, available for all the other therapies. Um, and uh, we certainly do want uh, physicians, DOs, chiropractors, ARNPs, acupuncturists to learn. You know, about 40% uh, um, or or more of the um, the membership of NADA are full body acupuncturists who get it. These are, are the sorts of acupuncturists uh, inside the VA. I have a, a very good friend who ran the um, the, the NADA based uh, uh, pain group in in Richmond, uh, Virginia. It was an excellent program treating vets with pain. Our wounded warriors using the uh, the other protocol. Um, so so um, it, it, it really can be available to anyone. It's just that simple. Uh, the, the beads is, is, is a, a seed, a magnetic bead on a piece of tape and just put it on, on, on the ear. There, there are no uh, sorts of um, um, safety restrictions that are even imaginable with regard to something that is that simple. With the needles themselves, Everyone is taught clean needle technique uh, uh, and the guidance that we follow with NADA is the same that a full body acupuncturist would, would follow in terms of clean hands, clean field, clean ears, sterile, single use needles so that, that any risk of infection is, is next to nothing. Um, so just, just very safe and easy to use. And in my personal role, I've, um, I guess, throughout my life somewhat, seen myself as having feet on both sides, on the mainstream side and on the side of um, uh, Black indigenous uh, healing systems that I consider ancestral uh, healing systems. And so what I'd like to do is to bridge those. And so, as you mentioned, I'm board certified in psychiatry, board certified in acupuncture as well and and love to try to help both sides to see where we all can meet in the middle for the um the the benefit of the patients that we're here to serve so i i research here in princeton there is 
I, I saw on the, on the website of one acupuncturist and it says not a protocol. So I'm happy to see that. Very good, very good. Sure there's more, maybe in yeah, my area. Yes, yes, yes. yes. And uh, uh, you, you know, you, you, keep, you mentioned about all those points. Yes. Can you just, what is it about the ear? Well, 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 it's, it's interesting. Um, at five weeks of life, when you are still an, an embryo in, in your mama's belly, uh, is when the ear starts to form. They're, the, they're called the embryonic gill plates. And so the embryonic gill plates is where uh, phylogeny recapitulates ontogeny, is the way it's said. But uh, what, what all that means it, 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 is that every stage of life that say a fish has gone through. Human beings kind of go through those stages every time that um, a baby is conceived and starts to form. So at five weeks of life, the part of our body that's gonna become the ear, we call them the embryonic gill plates because you find them in fish, birds, in reptiles, throughout the whole phylogenetic tree. And so at five weeks of life, what is going to start, what is going to become your ear starts to form. It's before you have a brain, before you have a heart, before any of your, your, your organ systems or skeletal systems are there. So that part that is going to become the ear is already communicating with your entire being. Um, as you start to develop further as a fetus, you develop three different distinct sorts of layers that is going to become the various um, uh, parts of, of your body. There's the ectoderm that starts to become your brain and your nervous system, your skin. There's the um, endoderm and the, uh, the mesoderm that starts to become your internal organs and your vascular system. That part that, that has already started to become your ear is communicating with all of that through, through nerves, through your hormonal system. And by the time that, that you're born, the ear is the only place in your in, entire body that all three of those layers are found in one place and they're accessible to the outside. I think about the ear as uh, an oracle. You know, in, in, in the medical terms, the ear is called the oracle. A-U-R-I-C-U-L-A-R. -I, I think about it as well as an oracle. O-R-A-C-L-E. Why? There have been um, studies done around the middle of, of the, the 1900s, most uh, famously out of France, where um, studies were done looking at if you have an inflammation in one part of, of your body, where in the ear might you find a decrease in skin resistance that will correspond to that part of the body? So the ear was 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 mapped out in this way using a uh, an, an ohm meter, the same sort of device you would put into an electrical outlet to see if elect electricity was flowing well. And so with that device, they were able to map out uh, a representation of the entire body in the ear. Now, now the use of the ear in treatment goes back thousands of years, including uh, we see pictures on the, uh, the pyramids, you know, with folks doing uh, reflexology, your feet, your, your hands, um, 
uh, in, in ancient um, Kemet. It was known to use the, <laughs> the cautery point to help with back pain. Uh, it, it's been used across the world. Virtually every culture uh, has had some way of, of affecting the outside of the body to cause internal change. The, um, the traditional East Asian medicine systems, including the Chinese systems, are re remarkable, uh, especially in China, because they were never completely colonized. So they never completely lost access to it through colonialization, whereas many other parts of the world, including Africa, have borne that sort of devastation. Uh, but um, uh, every part, every indigenous um, population in the world had these sorts of holistic techniques that were that they had access to to uh, to practice. So the ear, you ask why the ear? It's it, it, it's unique in its function. You can affect the entire body through treating the ear. Um, if folks who think about say the um, uh, think that that is fantastic, uh, I, I would simply remind you about the, the motor cortex within the brain, where if you have a stroke in one part in the brain, it affects your hand, another place your face, another place your arm or, or, or your leg. That same sort of microsystem representation of the entire body and at different places in, in the body, we also find in terms of your pain centers within the brain, your temperature centers within the brain. We find it in the hands and feet in terms of reflexology, but your ear is the only place that recapitulates who you were when you were a fetus in your mother's womb, where you had all those different embryonic layers there and is still communicating with them in a very uh, direct and profound way, so.